Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Today's episode contains material of a graphic nature uh, and is not recommended for younger listeners. Uh, Listener discretion is advised. In 1980, Michelle Smith and her psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, published a book that would shape the culture of the decade to come, lasting into the 1990s. Billed as the true story of a year-long contest between innocence and evil, the book recounted lurid memories of abuse that Michelle had recovered in therapy with Dr. Pazder. Going into a trance-like state, Smith discovered that she had been the victim of systematic abuse at the hands of a satanic group in Victoria, Canada. After bringing her to an orgy, her mother gave her away to the cult. The cult tortured her in an open grave, forced her to live in a cage, slaughtered kittens, and mutilated dead infants in her presence. If all of this seems to be too much to accept, well, that's because there's a very strong argument to be made that, while Smith and Pazder may have believed every word of Smith's story, most, if not all of it, had been imagined. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. I am joined by our Knight of the Dangling Serpent this day, Jacob Wheatley. Yo, yo, yo. (laughs) What's going on? Not much. Not much. Fair enough. Fair enough. How are things in Florida? Um, uh, significantly less alligators than I thought there were going to be, um, (laughs) People terrified me saying that that was going to be a thing here and to watch out every time I open my door. And that has yet to happen. So you expected them to be like in the hallway of your apartment? <laughs> yeah, there, there's animals that hang out. here. There's like stray cats and ducks that hang out right outside of my like front door, but no alligators. So everyone who told me that is a liar. <laughs> and Olivia Literal, our grandmaster of the order. Hello. Any alligators in your neck of the woods? Nope. Not at my door. Also, no ducks at my door. Is that good or bad? No, it'd be kind of cool. Be like You'd like a duck. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I can get one. I just adopted one. Yeah, yesterday, that's some harvest so. moon shit. You're living that, that Florida mm-hmm. harvest moon life. <laughs> <laughs> the DLC for harvest yeah. moon. <laughs> so this has been a year, gang, of uh, podcasting remotely. I mean, it's working out because we can still have Jacob on from Florida, but this is this more or less marks a year for us since we disappeared from the theater. Wow. That's crazy. Sad. So it is sad, yeah. I'm looking forward yeah. to getting back, but I don't. I think it's still going to be a little while before we'll all be vaccinated and can go back to to the big show it'll be good though it'll be nice it'll feel good when we're all together jacob will still be in florida so he'll he'll be remote (laughs) i will fly myself up every time it's gonna be very expensive on one of those alligators (laughs) that'd be pretty sick though riding an alligator all the way back from florida they move quick in the water i think Hmm. okay let's pledge it out we the members of the secret order of alchemical actors to solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Good. That felt good. All right, Olivia, here we go. Plug it in. Plug. 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 Here we got uh, just a few folks to thank today on the Patreon. Uh, Amy A. Also John A. Michael B. and Kara S. Welcome to the crew. 
it's we're very delighted to have these folks with us, uh, and we want to just you know let everybody know that we are continuing to grow the show and uh, could use to keep that Patreon rolling, uh, especially since we do not get into the whole advertising thing. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> dear listeners, dear confessors, there has not been a single ad in like 90 episodes on this show. Could you write ads for it, though? Like little fake ads? <laughs> Just to throw in. Just to show, sell nonsense? Yeah. I don't see why not. Um, but, I mean, the advertising thing for me is a point of pride for a couple of reasons. We are not beholden to any corporate sponsors. You know, there are conspiracy podcasts who, you know, claim to be out there giving you the truth and, and whatever. And, you know, they're just, you know, in the capitalist system like anybody else. We're, we're on the outside. We're only funded by our listeners. So um, we need you guys to fund us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we are very grateful to all the folks who are all right should we plug anything else that's feeling pretty good yeah i don't have anything else do you all right okay let's let's uh let's close it up plug 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 all right we got a lot of work to do today so it's good that we kept the plugs brief because uh, we we're, we got quite a journey to go on um we, we're going to start with this this book that M- michelle smith and lawrence pastor wrote uh, and if you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, I just want to say, uh, you probably have never heard of the book Michelle Remembers, but it, and, and you know, I'm a child of the 80s, Olivia and Jacob, child, children of the 90s. I promise you it impacted the world you grew up in, the the nursery school you went to, the, um, t- you know, movies and TV that were on in the background that you weren't allowed to watch. All of that was informed by really this book. This was a, a major contribution to the state satanic panic of the 1980s, uh, which just, you know, fed so much of panic over children and, and uh, what teenagers are doing and all the things your parents were afraid of when you were little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, so let's, uh, let's get into this. The book is written in the third person, uh, but this does not mask the strangeness of what Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pastor have to say about themselves. They self-mythologize on a regular basis. For example, Pastor is a handsome man in his early 40s, warm, manly, and soft-spoken, a typical Westerner. And by Westerner, we mean a Canadian Westerner, which is different, I think, than the American concept of a Westerner. (laughs) Uh, But think, he's writing this about himself right? <laughs> He's the author, calling himself handsome. I mean, I would too. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle Smith is described as a pretty young woman of 27 with a heart-shaped face, a delicate mouth, and bountiful brown curls. So they're a little bit like heroes in a romance novel, say themselves about themselves. Michelle seems to have had a troubled childhood, getting on to the story itself. After a difficult birth... She spent her first six months with her grandparents. Her her parents fought regularly, and her father was an abusive alcoholic. Significantly, Michelle's mother died when she was only 14 years old. This is suggestive uh, as far as Michelle's psychology, which, again, this is not a show where we diagnose people based on the books they wrote, so uh, we're not going to go too far there. 
However, so but, but you'll feel it as I'm telling the story. You'll feel that, oh yes, it's clear that she lost her mother when she was relatively young. Uh, however, since Michelle claimed that her mother brokered her satanic abuse when she was a child, it also leaves no family witness to dispute any of the things she has to say. You see, mm-hmm. so mo- mom was the agent, but mom died when she was 14. So, unfortunately, there's no one to dispute what she has to say about being a victim of a satanic cult. I don't think this is intentional. I think this is accidental, but it works out, you know, as far as the truth claim here. So, to break the cycle of abuse her parents had indoctrinated her into, Michelle Smith consulted Dr. Lawrence Pastor. Our two authors come together. In therapy, Smith felt like she was on the verge of dredging up some dark and significant memories. She developed a psychosomatic rash, which indicated to Dr. Pastor that her memories needed to be exorcised. Like, and like a, he uses the concept of exorcism regularly. He's a Catholic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you don't hear that too much in my neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> you do in the Catholic neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Later, she would also develop a cough, which was brought on by her recollections of a burning car wreck. So again, it's sort of psychosomatic. She remembers the car wreck and it precipitates this cough. That sucks. Like you're trying to do trauma work, but now you just like have all these like symptoms of... That sucks. What? Yeah, She's coughing, she's itching. Yeah, it's a mess. She's a mess. So is it even helpful then? Well, well you, can, you can tell me, Olivia, <laughs> as we go here. Okay, yeah, I guess I'm asking questions Yeah, too no, early. but it's good. It's good to think about. It's good to put us in that mindset. So even though uh, Pazder knew uh, that it could only result in an unhealthy manipulation of doctor by patient, so in other words even though he knew that doing what he was about to do would would give Smith too much power over him, he gave her permission to break into his schedule and call at any time and said he would help her right away. Olivia, is this good protocol for a therapist? No, I'm so like, okay, this is weird. It's going to get worse. This is only the beginning. So they have a very unusual, and I'm being very kind here with the word unusual, doctor-patient relationship. So four days later, while watering her plants, Smith says something just fit inside of her, and so she called Pazder up. In his office, she proceeded to lay down on the sofa for 20 minutes, because that was back in the day when you would lay on the sofa. (laughs) And a look of terror spread across her face. I don't think people still lay on the sofa, do they? That sounds so uncomfortable. I usually just sit or when I went. (laughs) You don't don't lay down. You don't lay flat on like a a divan or something. (laughs) That would be so weird. (laughs) Like, I would feel so uncomfortable to just, like, meet a therapist for the first time and have to lay down while you talk to them. (laughs) Get comfortable. Mm -hmm. So anyway, as she's laying on the sofa, a look of terror spreads across her face. She was not able to conjure anything specific at this session as far as a memory, but she was sure the memories were coming. Although Pazder almost never used a recorder in therapy, he decided to record these sessions, feeling that, and I'm quoting here, if whatever there is inside you, Smith, is strong enough to cause that much pressure, we should record it. With Michelle Smith, Pazder regularly breached his own protocols. Now, here's Olivia and Jacob where this gets weird. 
lacks about divisions between his therapeutic and personal relationships with his patient, Pastor attended her wedding to Doug Smith and sometimes visited socially with the Smiths. Mm -hmm. This is odd, right? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like... Just having your therapist over for, like, you know, fondue? It is kind of weird. After a week or so of sessions, he went so far as to sit on the sofa with Smith and allow her to place her head on his shoulder. Okay, weird, 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 weird vibes. This, Pastor says, seemed to give her the closeness and security she needed, Olivia. Oh, Come on. God. Oh, God. She's just transferring <laughs> and projecting. I can't. Okay. He's encouraging that, right? I, like, yes, he's encouraging this. Yes, and it's this. disturbing. But anyway. His unusual behavior with his patient tells us a few things. Tells Olivia more than a few things, <laughs> I think. First... That he did not view his relationship with Michelle as a normal relationship with a patient. So he said a couple things here, that he's going to record her, which he doesn't normally do. He's going to get on the sofa with her, which he doesn't normally do. I think the wedding thing, he was in a regular habit of, of like just going to social events with his patients. But anyhow, the second thing is that, is that he fully accepted Smith's idea of herself as deeply troubled, even before Smith had recounted a single episode of ritual abuse. So he perceived her as a person who needed special attention, even though he hadn't heard anything yet. Okay, well, You see what I mean? Yeah, that's problematic. Bought her whole routine, which of course she buys her own routine, mm-hmm. but you know, it, a therapist should theoretically be somewhat objective about whether or not the patient is suffering to the degree that they're d- displaying. Mm-hmm. Over time, Pazder's wife grew suspicious mm-hmm. of the amount of time Pazder was spending with his one patient mm-hmm. And Smith's husband grew weary of the dark satanic memories that Smith began dredging up. These were early signs of both the Smith and Pazder marriages coming undone in the face of this therapist-patient relationship. Wait, wait, say that again? Wait, what? So their marriages are becoming strained because of the way they're interacting with each other as doctors. Oh, doctor right. Michelle is also married. I forgot she was married. Yeah, she married Doug Smith. Larry right, went to right, the, uh, right. to the we wedding. Just, yeah. We just went over how weird that was, and I forgot. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Let that all sink in. Okay, so now you're really getting the scene here before we get into any of, of the claims of satanic abuse. And that's important to, to my mind. It's very important to understand this because this is going to be a theme. Our next episode, we're going to do a, a very similar situation where the person who's conducting the sessions and the person who is the patient have a, an unusually deep relationship. This goes back all the way to our episode, remember last year, with O'Brien That's, and her husband doing the I therapy. I was going to ask you about that because I kept thinking about yeah. it, but I couldn't remember her name. But she also Kathy O'Brien. had a thing. She married her therapist or whatever, right? And that's who... Yeah, well, sort of, he wasn't even a therapist. He was just some guy, I, I'm pretty sure. Oh. oh. <laughs> I can't remember what his yeah. occupation was, but he was not a professional therapist. He was doing business in China and stuff, and he met her, and then he decided he would deprogram Right, her. right. That's what it was, the deprogramming, not therapy. Yeah, <laughs> and they got different. married, moved to Alaska. <laughs> yeah, there was it's an unusually close relationship that sort of breeds these unusual tales that come out of of these exercises okay so anyway was in that case was he involved with her book or her story he wrote part of the book okay. yes yeah he did write part so of the it book. is so that's a very similar okay. parallel situation really gotcha. and we're going to get to another one next week so or next time <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a theme here at her second session now so now let's get into the stories right that's what we're all here for we're all, we're all here for some satanic abuse 
At her second session, Smith was very agitated and asked whether recounting her memories might kill her. Oh. Pastor reassured her, and then she went into a kind of a trance. Trance state. Again, very much like O'Brien. Michelle stared in silence at the ceiling for some time. Her eyes were full of fear. At last, she closed them hesitantly and began to deepen her breathing. It was a very labored breathing, as if she were fighting strongly against something way down inside. Then she screamed for 25 minutes, shaking to the point of almost convulsing. You know, like you do. Okay. Her first memory was of Malachi, the male leader of the satanic cult, grabbing her by the throat and pointing her like the needle of a compass, a ritual she would recall many times over in their sessions. To comfort herself, Smith saw herself clinging to a teddy bear, but she told Pastor she never had a teddy bear. I feel so guilty about that bear. You know why? Because it wasn't real. So let's dig into this a little. I think this is actually significant. Pastor doesn't read Michelle's confusion about the imagined teddy bear as a sign that there is anything suspicious about these memories. Rather, he explains that the teddy bear was something she needed to feel safe and doesn't offer any explanation at all for why it felt false or what it was doing in the memory in the first place. Later, the bear seemed to become a kind of dissociated second self. In one memory, the bear was gone, and in its place, Smith had imagined a literal second self, clean and neatly dressed, in contrast to Smith's messy, naked body. The second inside self floated near the ceiling, watching the proceedings, so like her inner self was not harmed. So her inner self remained clean and sort of like hovered and watched her. Are you getting all this? I I, I don't want to miss any of this, because I think it's important. She's like creating this kind of of i don't want to say like a placeholder but like a point where she's like it's a a comfort zone almost to like go to to like keep her grounded in a way is that like what the bear or like her self was yeah psychologically Mm -hmm. and it began as a teddy bear and then literally became like a second version of her but it's not coming out of the memory it's coming out of the exercise in this therapist's office so the memory is sort of like dirty it's an unclean memory And I don't mean that like, you know, that it's filthy or, Mm -hmm. you know, sexy or something. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a corrupted memory Mm -hmm. because already there are elements of the memory that she herself is acknowledging have been imagined into the memory. Like the bear. The bear. I think the bear is significant and it's, it's like an early warning sign Mm. that these memories are uh, distorted at best. Mm. At a, second, uh, at a session the following week, Smith told Pazder, These memories, they're so foreign. They're so out of step with the way I've always thought about my life. It appears that Smith is worried whether and to what extent she is fabricating these memories, particularly in light of her imaginary bear. But these concerns don't trouble Lawrence Pazner or Smith later in the process, once the details really start flowing. So eventually... They just get so deep into this that they don't ask questions. It's just like, oh, this is a part of it now. Yeah, these are memories. Gotcha. Yeah, none of this is imagined. All of this is is memory. So they thought that like the second self and bear were like actually a part of it eventually. Or maybe that she had imagined it at the time. Oh, okay. I don't even know. Okay. Or they just said, oh, that part was imagined, but everything else is real. Mm -hmm. 
even though it feels foreign to Smith. Mm-hmm. Which she's saying in the book she wrote about these events. You see, it's almost like they're giving themselves away here. It's like a confession almost. Speaking like, quoting here, a frightened little girl. So she assumes this voice of a frightened little girl. She sees herself as a child dressed in an oversized shirt while women pin black sheets to the walls, set up 20 or 30 candles, drape a bureau with an embroidered cloth, and place two silver goblets and a knife on the cloth. She is surrounded by women in black dresses, a very pretty woman with a black cape and a hood, setting her apart from the others who aren't wearing a black cape and a hood, picks Smith up, kisses her, sticks her tongue in Smith's mouth. Then the women pinned Smith down and rubbed a foul-smelling substance on her body. They brought the hooded woman some colorful sticks. The woman dipped a stick in a goblet and then shoved it into Michelle Smith's rectum. They then used the sticks to introduce the substance from the goblet into her nostrils, mouth, and ears, and at some point, Smith was stripped naked. It's not clear when, or it seems that she has been, or she has Mm -hmm. to have been, right, to experience all these um, penetrations. Mm -hmm. Then they sealed the ugly up inside of her in a way that Smith does not describe. Then they drew lines on her with a knife and painted half of her body dark while making a funny noise, presumably some sort of ritual chanting. So that's <laughs> that's our first satanic rite Jeez. that Smith describes to us. Does it sound at all like Satanism to you, Olivia? Uh, it's going to be a negative from me, yeah. It's ritualistic. It's ritual evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's this so, is like our, our paradigm of ritual it's evil. It's so vague, though. It, yeah, it'll it'll get more specific, but at this early point, it is it is quite vague, and it's it's only identifiable as to like feeling ritually and feeling scary. Just generally, right? like it's not really like, I mean, not that that like. I get what you mean. Yeah, it's just giving this feeling, and it, you you mean like it's not specific to any tradition. There's yeah, no... I guess I'm not really like that freaked out by it because I'm like I can't connect it really. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just like so mm-hmm. random. All right, so I want to make a note here about Pazder's biography, which we're going to get into as we go here. He had worked for a time among the Yoruba people of Nigeria, and he connected Smith's reference to the sticks used on her body to sticks that the Yorubans use for divination. What? This is, in my opinion, a vague similarity at best. So we're talking about like tossing yarrow stalks onto the ground to divine the will of the spirits or the gods. And he's saying, yeah, that's a lot like when you shove a... Uh, what? <laughs> stick up somebody's rectum. That, in that's what? So, like, in what world? What planet? How does that? <laughs> that's such a like far fetched to try to like connect. Like ugh. Smith's mother appeared at a satanic orgy, receiving oral sex under her skirt from a woman who Smith initially described as a lump unsure of what was happening under her mother's skirt, believing that her mother's moans were cries of pain. Smith smashed this lump or thing under her mother's skirt and ended up covered in blood. This drove the assembly, uh, those assembled for the ritual, that is, into a frenzy, and they joined Smith in smashing the lump. Everybody was like, that's a great idea. Smith ran around getting blood on the members of the party, and suddenly the mood changed. So when everyone was smashing the lump, they felt good. But now that she's putting blood on everybody, they're like, this isn't cool. This kid took it too far. Too far. Everyone got very quiet and still, and Smith's mother shouted at her, Michelle, what have you done? She struck Michelle and told the others to get the girl out of her sight. 
The woman, who it seems Smith and the members of the orgy had murdered, then ended up in a car with Michelle Smith. Malachi, who's the male leader of the cult, remember, uh, also a woman in a pillbox hat who was presumably the high priestess that she'd first met wearing the hood in that last vague ritual we were talking about, this, these two drove Michelle Smith out to an undisclosed location. The car was rolling down the mountain road as Malachi just laughed his cruel laugh and jumped out. The car gained speed, and I saw that it was heading for a rock embankment. The car smashed into the rock wall. The lifeless body in the front seat shot forward and then came violently back. Its head spun freely around, all the way around, as if the vertebrae were shattered, the face suddenly stopping inches from mine, and its eyes were rolled up into the head. Smith survives this crash and is brought to a hospital. Presumably, the cult blames the dead woman's demise on the crash. How they then justified Smith's presence in the strange woman's car to authorities, because police had to have shown up to the crash site, or the inconsistencies in the woman's injury with the accident because, again, she was bludgeoned to death by a child along with several other adults while giving oral sex to somebody. Uh, and the police would have theoretically noticed that there was, you know, that that also, didn't quite match up. Have noticed that they were covered in blood, too, considering she had just covered them in blood? <laughs> Maybe they cleaned up before oh, okay. this. I don't right. I'm not sure exactly about the timeline. Mm. But let's pretend, just to, for, to give them the benefit of okay. the doubt that they cleaned up before the... <laughs> The staging the accent. The rest of this is, you know, forensically just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of this is ever explained, uh, nor is the shattered vertebrae uh, that the victim seems to have. The car caught fire, so in theory the woman's body was burned beyond the point of conducting any meaningful autopsy, but Smith recalled seeing the, the body with shoes intact on a stretcher in the hospital. So it couldn't have been burned that badly. It was certainly not, like, intentionally burned. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like they intentionally covered evidence, because the shoes are fine. <laughs> and how could you forget the shoes, you know? Right, you gotta get the shoes out of there. There's always evidence all over shoes. Mm-hmm. It's always happening on, like, CSI. They catch you based on your Number shoe prints or something. <laughs> In the hospital, Smith's mother attempted to kill her by fiddling with her oxygen supply. Let me say that again. Smith's mother attempted to kill her. What? Uh, okay. By fiddling with their oxygen supply. Clearly there are mother issues here. Whether we accept these memories as true or false, I think we we can say Smith has some issues with her mother, yes? Uh-huh. Yeah, there's something going Is that on. fair? There. Yeah. <laughs> Something's going on. Uh, so she nearly choked the girl to death, but she somehow failed to kill the child. Smith's like five or six years old here, but she somehow fails to murder her in the hospital by choking her. Then Mommy returned to bring Smith a box with a doll in it and put her dead bird Budgie in it. So she's like, here, I brought you something in the hospital. And it turns out she murdered her pet and stuck it in a box. Oh, my God. Okay. Then she gave Smith up, gifting her to the high priestess of the cult to raise as a child of the cult. The priestess, who, as it turns out, has a day job as a nurse came to Smith in the hospital, presumably at least in part because she worked there, one would guess. She ordered an enema for Smith and forced her to defecate the bed. Later, she used a similar trick to make her defecate on a Bible. All in the hospital. What? 
She's like Nurse Ratchet or something. Yeah, <laughs> basically. Why though? Evil satanic nurse. Well, I think that all these enemas and stuff is to like get her to. She really wants her to poop on the Bible. Okay, but like, then what? They're in the middle of the hospital. <laughs> Shit, that's enough. That's good. It's. I think so, Olivia. What we have to bear in mind about Smith's story and and all the motivations of these characters, in theory, at least the way that she and Pazder are going to tell this, is that the goal is to make Michelle Smith into this sort of like perfect child of evil. Everything is about her psychology. So, in part, at just least, just by breaking her, she'll just become evil. Yeah, they're breaking her. Yeah, that's the goal. Okay. If they get her to do these horrible things. Then they can tell her she's evil, and therefore she belongs I feel like to them. There's like maybe oh. a fifty-fifty chance of that working. I feel like it's like a <laughs> solid. Either if you try to like fuck up a kid, you're either gonna get yeah, like a really a psychopath, or just like someone that's so traumatized that they're no threat to anyone. Yeah. You know, they're not evil. Flipping a coin there. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Like, <laughs> okay. Also, the way to go about it doesn't seem right if they wanted that to happen. You know. Yeah, I mean, just shitting on a Bible isn't like, I guess it's a little traumatizing, but I feel like the other shit she went through was much more traumatizing. <laughs> worse, yeah. We'll, we'll traumatize her worse, just, oh, just wait. Okay, well, <laughs> no. I spoke too soon. Hmm. Hold evil Nurse Priestess's beer for a second. She's going to make mm-hmm. this worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. After Smith was released from the hospital into the priestess nurse's care which is all i can call her because she's never given a name the priest but she's a major character so it's kind of tricky for me to tell the story so the priestess nurse then kept her in the basement her personal basement in her house regularly pulling her out to incorporate her into a series of increasingly bizarre rituals here we go hold that beer smith describes surreally horrific scenes an ugly doll's head was smashed open and a noxious ooze spilled out crawling with bugs the smith was then made to drink she was forced to drink her own urine and denounce god she was dropped into a grave multiple times we have multiple graveyard rituals where she's just dropped inside of, of a tomb in one instance She's released from the grave and uh, has to replace herself with a dead cat. This ritual was a kind of rebirthing event in which her mother dropped her into the grave, telling Smith she wasn't her baby and she never wanted her, and the nurse priestess then pulled her out, becoming the new mother. See? Another time, she watched as cult members brutally slaughtered white kittens in front of her and rained their tiny corpses down on top of her. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's just so bad, right? It's it's the worst. It's the worst kittens and bunnies, right? Mm-hmm. Puppies. Kitten sacrifice, though, was apparently a regular feature of this cult's ritual work. Then Michelle got very scared because they bent and took the kitten in their teeth, holding the cats by the napes of their necks. And then Michelle started screaming because now they were biting the kittens and the cats were howling and they were pulling the kittens apart with their teeth. The cultists would also act like cats as part of their rites, hissing and meowing and dancing funny, like cats. The cult makes the use uh, makes use also of a white statue shaped to look like Lucifer, whatever that means. Uh, I feel like that's many shapes, right? Yeah, like which one? Take your pick. The statue was hollow, and Malachi and the priestess would crawl up inside of it as a gimmick to make the others, apparent, who were apparently very gullible, 
members of the cult believe that the statue was literally occupied by a devil. So they would crawl up inside and like say things and oh. do things, and then everybody else would be like, whoa. See, that's kind of fun. That statue's talking. That's like some El Dorado <laughs> shit or something. Like, that's fun. I could get behind that, but that's about it. <laughs> we have to believe that these people are that naive, though, right? I mean, yeah, right? What? <laughs> if we're assuming this is all real, then... Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe. The, oh, the priestess in Malachi, they're the smart ones. Everybody else has got to be an idiot to go along with all this. They poured blood. They retrieved the corpses of people who had been bad in life, presumably taken from the hospital by the priestess nurse. So they would, would use the blood of criminals in their rites. At some point, the priestess nurse, uh, she switched Smith's accommodations from the basement to a cage. Oh, she was kept locked inside naked and made to use the bathroom in the cage. So I guess made to use the bathroom is not appropriate language. She peed and pooped in the cage. Uh, and she said it was difficult to sleep because the cultists would periodically just drop snakes in the cage to torment her. Even more horrific was their ritual use of infant humans. So <laughs> I've been slowly building this up. Now I'm getting to the very worst part, in case you were wondering if it gets worse from here. You're hitting the climax. Michelle saw the body of a baby so small she couldn't believe it was really born, implying that the child had been the product of an abortion, in my opinion. This dead baby was sliced open and rubbed against her, sort of like the kittens. Mm. In another rite, she was held down on a mattress and a dead baby was placed between her legs in some sort of travesty of childbirth. At this particular rite, Smith had been hiding a crucifix under the bed to protect herself, when she pulled it out, Malachi, painted red for the occasion, grabbed her hands with the crucifix in his own hands and used the crucifix to impale the dead infant's body. That's it. That was the worst. That's as bad as it gets. That's pretty bad, though. That That's is pretty, pretty horrific. Bad. Really bad. And specific now, Olivia. Yeah, right. Now we have very now specific symbolism. Much more specific, but yeah. yeah. Pastor told Smith that her experiences sounded to him like she had been caught up with witches, who the Catholic psychiatrist defined as being against the church. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Pastor believed that these witches were part of the, quoting, Church of Satan, which was, quoting again, actually older than the Christian church. Okay, Anton LaVey, take that. <laughs> Smith mentioned feeling as if they had taken her soul and as if she needed to see a priest. Despite Pastor's self-confessed awareness that there was almost a taboo against bringing a priest into the psychiatric situation, he made yet another exception for Smith and called Father Leo Robert, who was young and had a beard and a sense of humor, which, in Pastor's opinion, are the prime signs of a priest who would be hip enough <laughs> to accept the reality of childhood memories of satanic abuse. So, I'm relatively young and have a beard and a sense of humor. Apparently, I would also be someone you would go to, mm. although I am not a priest. <laughs> Pazder also gave Smith a small cross. Although not authorized to perform exorcisms, Father Leo would hunt down the exorcism rite from the Rituale Romanum, have it translated by a classic scholar, and then read it to Smith in lieu of performing the rite in order to give her comfort. So literally everybody is stepping outside of their professional boundaries in this episode. In this exorcism episode, I guess I should say. I guess in this whole episode, but in this particular moment, we have both a priest and a psychiatrist stepping well outside the boundaries of what they should be doing. Even theoretically, a classic scholar has been implicated in this 
in this activity. Leave the scholars alone. At this point, Pastor had stepped far beyond, okay, basically what I just said. He'd stepped far beyond the traditional boundaries of a therapeutic relationship. I got to say, I'm not highly versed on the doctor-patient protocols of the 1970s, but I can say with certainty, uh, because Pastor tells me that he has stepped beyond these protocols. So I don't know them, but Pastor's literally saying in the book, every time he does it, I shouldn't be doing this, but I did this. So he literally admits that, like, (laughs) he's going, that's crazy. (laughs) Every time, when he orders the exorcism, when he sits with her on the couch, every time he's like, yeah, I don't usually do this, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm doing it because this is special. This is a special case, which is reinforcing Smith's sense that she underwent something special. So not only did he describe his own eyebrow-raising choices in Smith's treatment this way, but he let the reader know that he was violating professional norms. He shouldn't have been scheduling days and hours of treatment at a time. He should have let Smith rest her... Shouldn't let... Sorry. He shouldn't let Smith rest her head on his shoulder. He shouldn't introduce her to a priest. It's almost as if he's confessing to us, to his readers, begging for our absolution and maybe even complicity in these indiscretions. It should come as no surprise... At this point, that Smith and Pazder divorced their spouses and, say it with me now, married each other in the ultimate breach of patient and doctor boundaries. I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the next step in their relationship, too. Like, I saw it from a mile away. Mm. Do you guys know anything about historical b- protocols on this stuff? I mean, you know about contemporary protocols. I mean, and clearly Pazder is in violation of all of those. But it, it, was it, you feel like in the 70s, people were just looser about this? I don't get this. My problem with it is where do you have time to make a love connection when you're trying to be, I don't know, healing someone's trauma? <laughs> It, healing someone's trauma for like 10 hours at a time, too. We're talking like, like marathon did, sessions and weeks and weeks. Were they just like, let's do this therapy session and then let's go get some dinner? Like, what does that, how does that work? It was a clear like crossing over, I think in part because of the volume of time they spent together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not, not at all excusing it, but I think that's ultimately just what happened. Mm-hmm. I feel like things couldn't have been that much different like relationships between yeah i mean yeah well he seems to know that he's right he's actively repeating over and over that like going (laughs) out of my way to yeah i don't know yeah so the messiness of the relationship here uh during smith's therapy so they married after the therapy but still did did, what what (laughs) shouldn't still shouldn't do that right they like was she undergoing therapy with him before they got married do you know I feel like it's about a year or so of therapy. Oh, Lord above. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Intensive therapy. I mean, if we're talking about this particular, these sessions, I'm not including their previous relationship as mm-hmm. patient and doctor, when it really got going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is the messiness of their relationship during therapy raises questions about the messiness of Smith's memories, which I talked about a little bit earlier with the teddy bear. Given Pastor's confused role, let's ask some questions here. I mean, beyond just, you know, uh, ethics here. Let's ask about these memories. To what extent was he coaching Smith rather than simply listening to and recording her memories? We see him directly inform her that the cult she seems to remember is part of an ancient anti-Christian tradition that he is certain actually exists. 
he's, he gives her this information, right? It doesn't come from her. This wildly spurious claim validates Smith and seems to suggest that Pastor was validating her all along rather than attempting to parse fact from fiction in memories she had so far dissociated from that she could only recall them in a trance-like state, essentially hypnosis, self-hypnosis. He didn't hypnotize her, but she sort of put herself Mm -hmm. in a state of hypnosis to recall the memories. Clearly, Smith had a conflicted relationship with her mother, which may have spiraled into the twisted form of some of these dark memories. Perhaps she had been hospitalized in childhood as well, and her child's inability to understand the means and motive of her treatment in the hospital conjured a satanic cult in her head, with a priestess nurse at the center of the thing. So she may have been tormented, right, by the way they were taking care of her in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Not intentionally, right, but it could have been painful, is my guess. And the nurse became a dark priestess, you know, in a distorted memory of those events. Does that make sense? Yeah. Pure speculation here. Um, There's no documentary evidence of her hospital stay, but we'll get there. In an effort to confirm her story, Pazder consulted her childhood pediatrician, who had some memory of her being in an accident and requiring hospitalization, but that was very vague. That was as far as he could go. In fact, no report of an accident matching what Smith described ever surfaced in Victoria, Canada at the time she indicated in her treatment. And there is no record of Smith vanishing for the extended period she described in the book when she was abused by the priestess nurse. A disappearance with this, which the school system would have noted, right? Like, yeah. if you disappeared <laughs> to live in a cage for six months, the elementary school is going to call home. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking this whole time, like, did no one ever know her? it's it, see it that's the way she's acting right is that she's all alone in the world and only her mother is aware yeah. of her existence the graveyard where smith describes extensive rituals including multiple instances of her screaming at the top of her voice is surrounded by houses on three sides uh, yeah and apparently none of the residents of any of these domiciles ever reported anything even remotely resembling these elaborate demonic festivities to the police and that would have been something they definitely would have said <laughs> yeah people are nosy our neighbors to the yeah right exactly. yeah our neighbors to the north in canada i think are known for being particularly cool about uh, stuff yeah mm-hmm. i guess this is in america but that's pretty cool that's that's unreasonably cool mm-hmm. hey what's going on out there i think they just tossed a kid in that grave um is that a bucket of dead kittens? Should we call the police? Nah, don't worry about it. Nah, it's probably fine. It'll be fine. Put put the hockey game back on. You're going to call the cops. Yeah. Furthermore, Smith's father and two... Love you, Canada. Furthermore, Smith's father and two siblings... Let me say this again. Her father and two siblings. Just just imagine. Like oh, we've my been God. Sort of completely neglecting that these oh people exist. God. But there are... Siblings who make this whole story very hard to believe just because they exist. Oh my god, the reveal of this is so good. (laughs) She has a father, she has siblings, and they deny her claims. Thought about it. Like she probably would have other family, but it was just her mom. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I didn't even consider she had a father. I (laughs) 
Right? There are these oh, other family man. members who apparently didn't object, and Michelle was singled out. They didn't bother the other siblings. Mm-hmm. But guess what? When we asked dad and we asked those siblings, because mom did die, mm-hmm. so we can't ask her. But when we asked them, they said, nope, this is made up. This never happened. She was never out of our house. It's interesting that none of her like memories of like all this bad shit had anything to do with them like at all like not even her siblings like it do you think like she just kind of went into shock after her mother's death and there was like some things that like she might not have had the best relationship with her but it kind of just brought it out so it was only like focused on her like all these things no i just my mind is kind of like just got blown when you just brought up the father and then two siblings because i just I don't know why I didn't even <laughs> didn't even think about it or consider it. I guess I did when I was like thinking, does nobody know her? But I was thinking like, did she ever go to school? Not mm-hmm. like she did. Yes, and her teachers so... knew her and did not remember okay. her disappearing. All right, all right. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> and there would be a record of it. There would totally be a record with well, the school system of yeah. her vanishing. And they definitely like contact like homes and stuff, and eventually start taking action if like kids aren't showing up to school oh, yeah. too so. oh yeah Pro- child <laughs> yeah. protective services gets involved social even workers. in the 70s yeah. Yeah. it's the yeah, 70s it's like... mm-hmm. yeah it's this i mean it is the 70s it's not like it's 1850 right, right? So it's, <laughs> they're not at the same standard of social work and stuff that mm-hmm. we are today but it exists mm-hmm. all right so let me try to explain where some of this stuff comes from because it is bizarre these tales that she has Part of the explanation um, potentially comes from a group called the Leopard Men. So we're going to go to Africa for a second. (laughs) Hold on tight. (laughs) Because Pazder spent time in Africa. And and I think I've adequately established that Pazder was not shy about coaching these memories. He didn't know he was doing it. It's sort of like those situations with... um, And and we'll get into this a little bit as we go, but it's worth taking a moment here. Uh, Do you know there's those folks who... um, suffer from like um, muscular dystrophy or something or mm-hmm. multiple scler- sclerosis where they can't move, but they could develop this, this um, system where they could work with a board. Don't quote me on this, but like somebody would work with them and help them move their hands in order mm-hmm. to allow them to communicate. Does this sound yeah. familiar? My cousin has it. Oh. What is it called? What, what, what is the, I'm pretty sure that's you're on the right track. I was right. Yeah. Multiple sclerosis so. or something like that. Um, it, but they don't have any muscle. They don't have. Mm-hmm. They can't move. So the the person helps them move. Mm-hmm. But there have been cases where people have developed romantic relationships with these people, and got them to say all kinds of things. But they're not really. They're not the person with the disability is not the one speaking. It's the person moving their hands, like on a Ouija board. Oh. oh, I see what you're saying. So what's really happening between Pazder and Smith is a kind of a Ouija board. Smith is becoming his you know his patient his 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 Ouija board where he's manipulating her memories but he doesn't know he's doing it because these people who work with these uh, folks with multiple sclerosis and I keep saying it and I hope I'm not wrong but Jacob has validated me so I'll correct myself next episode if I'm wrong but they believe that these people are communicating they legitimately believe in these communications but they're not real they're not really talking hmm. it's the person talking you see what I mean mm-hmm all right, let's do the leopard men because I teased that and then I yeah we went to Africa t- and then we came back real fast. I didn't back to Africa. Woo! Get back on the boat. So more damning. 
Still, then these inconsistencies in evidence and circumstances are all the kittens and cat-like behavior of the occultists. In his book on moral panics, Philip Jenkins connects Smith's memories to Pastor's time in Africa, where he would have come across a rich folklore surrounding the leopard and lion men. In uh, The Man Leopard Murders, written by David Pratton, uh, the scholar Pratton describes an African tradition of belief in cults whose members were able to transform into animals. This belief goes all the way back to the mid-19th century. In Nigeria, between 1945 and 1948, more than 196 men, women, and children had been killed by a shape-shifting cult in Nigeria, west of the Kwa Ibo River. 96 men were convicted of murder, and 77 were executed. That was way more than I thought you were going to say. I thought there was like <laughs> two, three, four leopard men, but Jesus. Yeah, it's a big okay. thing. Big thing. Man leopard killings were often done at dusk, with victims being snatched from an isolated bush path, much as leopards would kill their prey. So a leopard, apparently, and I, I didn't know this about leopards because I'm not a biologist, just grab you off the path. So that's terrifying. <laughs> uh, but this is what they would do. Victims were attacked from behind, biting at the neck and throat, uh, and were often stabbed as well. So making it all sort of seem leopardy. Eyewitness accounts often conflicted, with some witnesses swearing that the victim had been killed by a leopard, only to change their mind later and say that it had been a man. The leopard cult went out at dusk as a group, with two men outfitted in leopard skins and deadly claws. Human flesh was cooked and eaten, and human fat and blood rubbed on Bofima medicine. B-O-F-I-M-A, Bofima. Africans tended to understand bonihinda, or leopard business, as a real external transformation into an animal killer. Leopard men were associated with the village chiefs and political aspirants, um, in other words, people who were gaming for political uh, promotions, as a way to reinforce local power to the detriment of colonial power. You got me there? Mm-hmm. So they used leopard power to raise up the local Africans and to undercut the colonials, which is, you know, <laughs> the rest, I was, I was not on board, but that's okay. We're okay with <laughs> undercutting the colonial powers. Justified there, honestly. <laughs> Maybe cooking and eating human flesh is not the way to go about it, but I, I honor the motivation. Whether leopard men actually participated in cannibalism, though, is difficult to say, since charges of cannibalism were often made to tarnish rivals' reputations. So I might say, you know, Jacob over in his tribe, uh, I should be in charge of his tribe because he's a leopard man who eats people, but I'm not a leopard mm, man. Valid. Um, valid point. Yeah, I can't argue yeah. with it. And then they might give me your tribe, those colonialists. Pastor did not, and in this scenario, I'm an African, by the way. <laughs> so Got it. I don't, I don't mean to confuse everyone. It's Africans accusing Africans of, of cannibalism. And of course, the colonial powers get involved. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. They're absolutely going to participate in these, uh, this folklore. And they're going to believe it because they believe all sorts of horrible things about Africans. They're primed to. So 
here's the weird thing, though. Pastor went all the way to Africa to hear these stories, but he doesn't have to have gone all, all the way to Africa. Uh, Pratton says, the scholar on, on this subject, that the leopard men began to appear in literature, comics, and films from the 1900s, all the way back to the 1900s on. They became regular protagonists in dramatic tales set in the African colonies, which played on the image of savage murder and barbaric rites and served to embed popular perceptions of Africans among a European mm-hmm. readership. Here's some of the folks that engage with leopard men. Tintin. Do you guys know the Tintin character? Oh, the dog? The, like the cartoon? Or is it uh, a yeah. dog? Is that... hmm? He has a dog with him. He oh, has a dog. Okay, yeah. I don't really know. So Tintin had a, Af- a leopard man plot. Tarzan had a leopard man plot. That's true. And... <laughs> yeah, right? And a radio version of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> All of these had encounters with oh, leopard men. Okay, Sherlock. I see you. In the Tarzan story, the leopard men terrorize villages to collect victims for their, quote, savage rights and cross Tarzan when they abduct a white woman. He won't stand for that. In Mm. 19... (laughs) Jacob, Mm. it sounds like you want to say something. No. (laughs) Paralyzed by that. Yeah, I was. I really was. It was more of the moment of... uh. Not the white woman. Not the white woman. <laughs> in in 1946, this actually became the movie Tarzan and the Leopard Woman. Oh. So this was circulating in the culture pretty pretty far and wide. They made it a lady? Uh, well, I think that she was the leopard woman, the, uh, the abducted woman. Oh. oh. So she didn't become a leopard, but I, I think it was about that. You know what I mean? Oh. Mm-hmm. He was saving her from the leopards. I'm guessing. I didn't see the movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, my research didn't go that deep. <laughs> it went deep. If anyone has a review, yeah, let not me know. that deep. Didn't dig that one out, uh, but maybe I will now. Smith's cult not only acted like animals. So, getting back to Smith, so let's hear the connections here. They acted like animals. They rubbed her with the blood of dead infants, sounding a little bit like the Bofema medicine, and forced her to consume blood. All elements of Bofema, and. It's also cannibalistic that she has to consume blood, that they're using the blood of criminals on the bodies of infants. All of this connects with the leopard men. Hmm. The kittens, while they were not part of the African secret society, may have been derived from pastors coaching Smith into tales of an Africanized satanic cult in Victoria. Kittens and the many horrible things the cult did to them, speaking of Smith's cult, may have just popped into her imagination as Pazder asked whether the cult members dressed like animals or acted like cats. I don't know that he asked these questions, but I'm guessing based on what she told us that he did. Yeah. I mean, it's because it's like, it's, kind of, it's like some of the shit she was saying, especially in the beginning, is so like, I don't want to say unique and that I've never heard anything like it, but yes. It's odd. Yeah. It is odd. It was almost like she started like saying some stuff and he was like, oh, this reminds me of this and just starts like asking questions, like leading questions <laughs> almost <laughs> to get to that. Yeah, it's like me and mm. Wikipedia is what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like the exact same wormhole. That... Yeah. I don't know. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Smith is, is human Wikipedia. She will give you whatever it is you put into her. She'll spit back some yeah, version and of if, it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I gotta say that I do not believe that any of this was intentional. I don't think that Pazder knew what he was doing any more than Smith knew what she was doing. Together, they just fooled themselves and each other into believing these outlandish tales really happened. Mm-hmm. And the fiction they sold as truth fed an international moral panic. Let me bring this home a little bit. 
we're not done. We got some more ground to cover, but I want to get closer to home from Africa. Tales of African assassins were actually not the only inspiration for Smith's distorted memories. Closer to home was the sad case of a boy named David Weilbacher. Leon Cunningham was a self-ordained minister who ran a small communal home in Yakima, Washington. Debbie Weilbacher, Weilbacher, sorry, Debbie Weilbacher, recovering from a drug addiction, had moved into the house with her three-year-old son, David. It was April 1976, uh, and Cunningham decided that little David was possessed by a demon. He was passed from person to person and paddled with sanded boards over and over again. He was repeatedly thrown to the floor. Uh, In the last instance, on the 22nd of July 1976, when he stopped breathing, and then he sadly never got up again. The group believed that God would resurrect David and placed him in a back bedroom to await this miracle. Two months later, Leon's wife Velma reported the death to the authorities, and in September they arrested Cunningham. Five adults, Cunningham, his wife Velma, their daughter Carolyn, Debbie Weilbacher, and another woman who was staying in the house named Lorraine Edwards, they were all charged, and all five were found guilty of second-degree assault. Leon and Carolyn Cunningham and the boy's mother were also found guilty of first-degree manslaughter. According to folklore scholar Bill Ellis, while this case did not receive national attention, it got months of coverage in the news in Washington State. And... Across the Canadian border in British Columbia. Ellis points out that these events overlap the 14 months of therapy beginning in 1976, in which Michelle Smith told the story of her own abuse at the hands of a single man named Malachi and a group of women. You hearing me here? That's (laughs) making a lot of sense. Malachi equals Cunningham. All those women are his four other cult members. Mm -hmm. But this was a Christian cult, friends. Let's bear in mind, this is not a satanic cult. Cunningham was practicing his distorted version of Christianity. (laughs) Now, I was just going to mention, it reminds me of the... the, Like, it just happened not that long ago with... What was that family called? But they were like the doomsday and they killed like the two kids. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, you're more tuned into that stuff than I am. I, I have a vague recollection. Yeah. Kind of sounds like a similar scenario was all I was thinking. It, it happens. It, it, I mean, we just talked about it on the Manson episode, uh, the little boy who was put in a box right. because he yeah. burned down a building. I can't yeah. remember the name, damn it. Anyway, keep going. Let's also bear in mind that one of the cult is the mother of the boy. Exactly like Smith's story, where her mother is an active participant in all this. Ellis also points out that the name Malachi, a biblical name that we don't often hear, you don't run into many Malachi's on the street, (laughs) this actually belonged to the author of a best-selling book on exorcism named Malachi Martin. The book, Hostage to the Devil, was first published by Reader's Digest in, wait for it, 1976. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Also the year my parents got married, but that's completely unrelated to any of this. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lovely event, and uh, no Canadians were in attendance, although I'm sure they would have been happy to have some there. I think my mom was chilling in high school, so that's pretty sweet. There you go. 
Okay, let's talk about why this, why I'm telling this story, why this is important. And we've done a bit of this on the Satanic Panic, although we did not get into this story in detail. Now we're sort of going back and, and covering our bases here with ritual evil. But, but this, this story fed a moral panic around Satanism. And Pastor also had a subsequent career as a promoter of the Satanic Ritual Abuse legend, appearing on television and in court trials. So the book, paired with Pastor's sort of speaking tour, validated belief in a Satanic conspiracy. In a survey of newspapers, the scholar Philip Jenkins found that there was only one newspaper story combining the words ritual and abuse in the year 1983, but by 1995 that number had exploded to 293. The combination of the words satanic and abuse went from two instances to 270 instances in the same period. In the 1980s, the child abuse movement at the center of Jenkins' study trained its focus on two new areas that shaped the conversation around satanic ritual abuse. First, they began to pursue what they called pedophile rings. And second, social workers and psychologists developed new methods for interrogating child witnesses in legal proceedings. A whole new field developed around child abuse and professionals working in that field who believed that children never lied about matters of sexual abuse an idea that grew out of women's advocates' uh, critiques of the justice system's unwillingness to believe the claims of rape victims. So it's a good, it's a nice thought, right? We want to believe mm-hmm. victims. Yeah. But in the case of children, hmm, not that children are lying, but they're very easily manipulated by adults in ways that the adults may not even realize. Children are much trickier witnesses than adult women, and their accounts often included bizarre and seemingly outlandish details. In the 1980s, daycare workers across the country suddenly found themselves targeted by children's accounts of bestiality, flying, literally flying in the air, and being introduced to celebrities as they were being ritually abused. We said in the Satanic Panic episode, for example, Chuck Norris apparently showed up at the McMartin Daycare Center. Weird. Child abuse professionals simply said that these bizarre details were made up by the abusers to help discredit the children when they came forward. So in other words, the abusers would feed them this weird stuff so that the children would look ridiculous when they confessed that this was happening to them. It's a convincing line. Um, Anti-cult groups who gain notoriety for their efforts to deprogram so-called brainwashed victims of various alternative religious movements began to affirm the existence of satanic rites involving children, and the Christian right developed its own sizable literature on the theme of satanic abuse. This goes back to Johnny Todd and uh, Mike Warnke and even Charlie Manson and Ed Sanders in the 1970s. But also... Pastor and Smith. They, they're sort of like the point of the spear here. The moral panic began to crack apart as children's accusations turned from lower-income working-class daycare employees to the social workers, lawyers, and doctors who were supposed to be treating the abused children. So they started out saying, hey, this person making minimum wage, they abused me. And everyone was like, oh, that's horrible. And then they were like, you abused me too. And then they were like, whoa, no, I didn't do that. So ended the satanic panic. In 1987, the media began uh, the project of debunking satanic ritual abuse claims, and this became a regular topic for pop journalists and talk shows through 1994. So basically from 83 to 87, they built this up, and then from 87 to 94, they took it down, and the ratings were sky high all along. 
But my point here is that by the time the genie was being shoved back in its bottle, the substantial damage to people's lives and society had already been done. There are many stories to tell about the panic, and I've already told several of them, but I'm going to tell one that I found particularly shocking to close up today's episode. Uh, And this story took place in the town of Bakersfield, California. You guys ever been to Bakersfield? No. I have some family over there. Do you really? Seems nice. near it. Yeah. It's where uh, Baskets is is set with uh, Zach Galifianakis. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. In January 1980, Gene Barber, so follow me here. I'm going to try to get this story as clear as possible. Gene Barber, who's an electric contractor, there's a lot of people in it, so just let me know if you get, get tangled up. 1980, Gene Barber, an electric contractor, called the police because his wife, Marianne, had threatened to stab him. When the police arrived, Marianne explained to them that her step-granddaughter, Bobby, was being molested and everyone was out to get her. She became so agitated that the police took her to the psychiatric ward of the Kern Medical Center, where a doctor observed that she showed signs of paranoia and delusions. Marianne had made it a habit to examine the genitals of her two stepdaughters, Darla and Bobby, looking for signs of abuse. And she came to believe, based on these examinations, that the girl's step-grandfather, Rod Phelps, was abusing them. Later, Marianne found herself in the psychiatric ward again. She had purchased a firearm and pulled a knife on her husband, but this time she found a psychiatrist and a social worker who were willing to believe her stories about Bobby, and they blamed her mental state on the child's molestation. Bobby and Darla's mother, Debbie McCoon, ran a daycare center, and Marianne contacted a social worker named Betty Palco to try and get McCoon's license revoked. Palco called the licensing office, but they found nothing amiss, and Marianne blamed Palco and accused her of being part of a growing conspiracy to cover up the children's abuse. You got me so far? So we got this one woman, Marianne, she's going around trying to, well, she's trying to tell a specific story that the girls, that these two girls are being sexually abused because she's been watching them and looking at their genitals. And then uh, she she accuses this whole family of being involved, one of whom runs a daycare center. And when the social worker won't support her, she's like, you're in this too. You're all Satanists or you're all abusers anyway. So an official from Child Protective Services and a sheriff's deputy then went to the girls' school to interview them and recorded that Bobby and Darla had accused not only their step-grandfather, Rod Phelps, but also their father, Alvin McEwen, of molesting them. Alvin, whose wife is running the daycare center. The girls were legally separated from their parents, and Marianne was awarded their guardianship. The woman who's been going around with all these stories, now the girls belong to her legally. Alvin contacted his friend, Scott Kniffin, to ask if he would serve as a character witness at the forthcoming trial. This is important. Scott here. Kniffin was the inventory manager for a diesel company and was a respected family man who coached wrestling and soccer. His wife, Brenda, taught Bible school, and the couples sometimes played canasta at the Kniffins. Canastic at the Kniffins. Kniffin agreed to help his friend at the trial. So, Alvin McEwen, accused of molesting his his daughter, these two girls, uh, he calls up his friend, who is this, you know, like, uber, you know, Christian white bread dude. Mm-hmm. And says, will you be a character witness? And this guy says, okay, I got your back, man. So, after these events, Marianne, remember Marianne, she's the center of this whole storm, 
she called the police to say that she had new information about the alleged orgies and molestation that these girls had been victims of. Because remember, the girls are staying with her now. She's their legal guardian. But now Bobby was telling her therapist that she had never been molested at all. So Bobby's telling Marianne she had been molested. She's telling her therapist never happened. Marianne began keeping the girls up all night, interrogating them about the abuse. These all-night sessions produced reports of the girls being chained up and beaten, photographed, and videotaped. Dog food and cat food were placed in their vaginas, and animals called to eat out of them. They were shown snuff films and warned that this is what happens to little girls who talk. The orgies at which the girls were abused included the Kniffins and their sons, as well as Alvin McEwen's cousins and their children, and the social worker Betty Palco, as well as another family, the Marillos. All these people are at the orgy with the dog food and the snuff films and all this stuff. And this, Marianne is getting this out of these kids in the middle of the night. She's waking them up at 3 a.m. and she's like, tell me more about the dog food. On the 8th of April, 1982, I'm still not born yet, by the way, all the people who Marianne accused were arrested. Scott Kniffen was so shocked by the arresting officers that he thought it was some sort of prank, like a singing telegram. But his boys had begun to tell the same stories as Bobby and Darla. After repeatedly denying that their parents had molested them, the boys were told they could go home if they just admitted it. Imagine that you're eight, right? Eight years old, and the cops won't let you go. And they're saying, your parents molested you, right? And you're saying, no, they didn't molest me. Your parents molested Mm -hmm. you. No, they did not. Daddy loves me. Well, you can go if you just say they molested you. How many hours would it take? It's similar, That's pretty messed up. Similar to the, the three, West Memphis three, whatever they're called. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, these techniques span all sorts of Which I guess yeah. was satanic panic related, but later down the line. Marianne, again, woman at the center of us who's been to the psych ward twice, which does not discredit her necessarily, but is worth remembering, believed the children's lives were in danger, and Bobby and Darla were moved to a foster home. So now they're no longer under her care. And as soon as they're no longer under her care, Bobby told a sheriff's investigator that Marianne had forced her to make up an accusation and that Marianne wouldn't listen when she denied being abused. Marianne prodded her and kept her up until she heard what she wanted to hear. Sounds like Marianne was the driving force of trauma here. <laughs> Just oh, yes. Okay. Just... Yeah, I mean, we said this, I think, Olivia, years ago when we did Satanic Panic, but these investigations traumatize the children yeah. who would have never been traumatized but for the investigation because they were never abused. For sure. A lot of kids had to grow up real fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The police are telling them all these horrible stories about things that happened to them and it never happened. You know, that's traumatizing. Right. Betty Palco, our social worker, managed to avoid being convicted because her attorney successfully demonstrated that Marianne's mental health issues had been the cause of the accusations against Palco and her boyfriend. By the way, the social worker's boyfriend gets pulled into oh this gosh. too. However, now here's where it gets really dark. In May 1984, the McCuins and the Kniffins were found guilty. Remember the Kniffins who are teaching, coaching freaking like baseball or whatever, I don't forget the sports, and teaching Bible school. In 1984, they're, they're found guilty of abusing their own sons as well as all these other children. Significant to the case against them was a wink response that Dr. Bruce Woodling received by poking the children's anuses. In case you're wondering, this is a completely bogus test for sexual abuse that Woodling convinced jurors was legitimate. 
because he believed it was legitimate because he was a moron. Just because you got that MD doesn't mean you're smart. <laughs> or I guess doesn't believe it's not that he's not. I'm sure he's very smart. I'm sure he knew all sorts of things about like the numbers of bones we have in our body and stuff. But it doesn't mean you're not naive to your own biases and that your biases mm-hmm. can't shape a whole lot of nonsense. If you're not thinking critically all along the way, he's a little dumb, very just true. like a little, <laughs> little dumb. Despite multiple appeals and a complete recantation on the part of the Kniffin boys, the McCoons and the Kniffins remained in prison until August 1996. Damn, that's like wait. eight years. Wait, how many? I can't remember what you said. It is 12 Damn. years. Oh that's my more gosh. than I even thought. <laughs> These two people living their working class life i mean my dad was a machinist like i can identify like i was living like i'm a little bit younger than these boys but you know it's like somebody came to my house accused my dad of abusing me and then just took both of my parents away and put them in jail that's what happened that's insane out of the blue and you know dad stayed in jail for 12 years ruining the kids lives right Mm -hmm. because they don't have a they're they're normal they just had a normal family you know scott kniffin's only mistake was saying yes i'll be a character witness for an innocent man by the way yeah and suddenly he's caught up in all this i mean that's my heart really goes out to to the to that family in particular the McCoons as well but that family boy they were blind because you know even if his name was cleared like people would never not associate it right to oh, him yeah. and therefore but, the family. But he spent 12 years in jail, right. so yeah. <laughs> he didn't even get that. That's so sad. So in August 1996, the Kern County Superior Court Judge John Stoob vacated all former convictions based on the recantations by the child witnesses, also faulty forensic evidence, and substantial police and prosecutorial mus- misconduct. So basically the whole thing was t- stupid. <laughs> the whole thing was messed up. Right, and it took 12 years to finally unravel it and this judge because multiple appeals were turned down. That's crazy. That's that's how powerful this thing is. Yeah, I guess people were like just really freaking out anyway. And, you know, I'm going to be making the case in in a month or so that it's coming, that it's back, that in in many ways it's back, right? So we the, the things I'm talking about today are not just like historical lessons, things that happened. I'm bringing it up to the present day. We need to be afraid of this now. Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder did not create the stories that Marianne, the McCuin girls, and the Kniffin boys told to authorities, but their book affirmed criminal justice officials and social workers' belief that satanic child abuse was a real threat to public health and safety. The pernicious influence of their claims would outlast even the egregiously long sentences of the McCuins and the Kniffins in the world of conspiracy literature, where the names Smith and Pazder would slowly fade but the notion of a continuous secret cabal of satanic abusers would survive to feed one of the most dangerous conspiracy movements of the 21st century. I'm going. I'm, I'm coming for today. <laughs> but before we get there, we need to stop over for a couple of episodes with U.S. intelligence. <laughs> First, we'll take one more trip around the block with the CIA's so-called mind control program in the case of World War II USO star and model Candy Jones. That's coming up next week or next time. I'm very excited about this episode. 
Then we'll consider the military's importation of Nazi scientists, which spawned a legend of a ritually abusive, mind-controlling Nazi therapist. So, coming up next here on Occult Confessions. Any final thoughts, guys? You guys have been uh, uh, pretty much weighing in along the way, but any any final ideas? I'm going to have to ask my mom if she, like... I don't know if she would remember it specifically. Michelle remembers. That was a weird sentence, but... I feel like I wonder if she how much she was like aware of like satanic panicky things going on because she was in Catholic school like her whole life. But her her parents like didn't really practice Catholicism. It was more of like they immigrated from Italy and Russia. So it was like we're putting you in Catholic school because we think it's safer. But the book came out in 1980. So she would have been probably about what, 20 at the time. Uh, something like that. Maybe. A, yeah, my parents were in their mid twenties. I think um, she was probably uh, right yeah. in high school still. But yeah, well, but she like even would tell me shit like even in Catholic school because she's left-handed, they would like literally try to beat her, <laughs> like beat it out of them to not be left-handed, uh-huh. even like in the eighties. So, but she's still left-handed, so I don't really. <laughs> She proved them wrong. Yeah. I <laughs> think she her. said she like changed. She learned. She was like basically could write with both hands for a while, but then she like mm-hmm. went back. But not that that's like <laughs> as big as what we just talked about. But I just wonder how much it was like a like if she would actually remember mm-hmm. like anything about it, like from someone that was there at the time. But let's gong it on into the uh, old order of confessors. All right, then. Luis, or Louis, who goes by Terry, left us some love on Facebook. Louis, or Luis, sends Olivia in particular oh, some love. Oh, thank you. Ooh. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're sad because they've binged everything we've got, but no worries, because that content train just keeps on rolling here at the Alchemical Lab. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, our new friend Daniel O was listening to our vaccine episode. Wrote in to let us know that the way the uh, know about the way the vaccine is designed. Daniel says we we may need to get something like a regular flu shot for COVID to address the variants. Mm. So something to bear in mind. Um, if you want to know a little bit more about Daniel's explanation, check out uh, our post uh, about the vaccine episode on Facebook. And I encourage everyone to join the Facebook group. Uh, if you're on Facebook, it's a great way to connect with us. A great group of people posting memes and you the know memes reflecting are on the episodes. Top tier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. It's a it's a fun it's a fun group. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're on Facebook and use the Facebook and want to check it out, we're also considering starting a Discord. I don't know what that means, but uh, if you if you're interested in that, write in and let us know. Jacob, what is that? Um, it's just like a little chat room that you can create yeah. for people to like come to and just hang out. Sometimes you can do like voice chat and like talk to people or whatever. It's pretty fun. It's cool. Right. Actually, the school that I go to, um, people who went there created it. Oh, that's cool. So created Discord. Fun. Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Our sources today are Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pastor's uh, Michelle Remembers. <laughs> <laughs> Also, David Pratton's The Man, Leopard, Murders, History and Society in Colonial Nigeria. Philip Jenkins' Moral Panic, Changing Concepts of the Child Molester in Modern America. There's something you don't want to read in the dark. Uh, Debbie Nathan and Michael Snedeker's Satan's Silence, Ritual Abuse and the Making of a Modern American Witch Hunt. 
Uh, I also recommend the National Registry of Exonerations, which is where we found information about the Kniffins and McEwen's release. It's an interesting resource. Uh, very valuable. Okay, Olivia, let's get out of here. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. I want to thank Lucy Bond and Brandon Walls for providing the voices of Michelle Smith and Lawrence Pazder today. Excellent work to both of you, as always. I've been joined at the mic by our uh, Knight of the Dangling Serpent, Jacob Wheatley. Fare thee well. <laughs> and Olivia Literal Grandmaster. Watch out for cults. Real or imaginary. Ooh. That's yeah, true. Particularly imaginary, I think, for this series. But yes, real or imaginary, I agree. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to speaking to you again here on Occult Confessions. Bye, bye, bye. bye. <laughs>